You're listening to the Electronic Media Collective Podcast Network. Yeah, it's a mouthful. For more great shows like the one you're about to enjoy, visit electronicmediacollective.com. And now, our feature presentation. Hey, Jordan, your usual drink tonight? Yes, thank you. So, where's Eric and Ryan? Uh, They're on their way. I wanted to listen to your latest podcast, but where can I download the episodes again? You can download all of our episodes at movieguyspodcast.podme.com. You can also find us on every social media platform. Every social media platform? That's awesome. Hey, it looks like your friends are here. Let me get the first round for you guys. So we're talking about Eyes Wide Shut tonight, and I'm going to have to say that this movie has brought my love for Kubrick and also art, art, art house films back. I haven't had that love in many years, and I'm back. I cannot wait to talk about Eyes Wide Shut. I've not seen this in 15 years. I'm ready to go. Eric, how the hell are you doing? Uh, I guess uh, better than than most it's a it's a nice day and it was uh kind of ruined by eyes wide shut i i understand that stanley kubrick kubrick is a uh an acquired taste and a lot of people who uh watch and follow i guess i should say follow more than watch uh kubrick's films uh tend to overanalyze and it um it's more it's deeper than just a movie I think, right? Brandon, that's you, bud. <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to introduce me. I'm sorry. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, anyway, I we got we got we got we got Brandon here, uh, who is my brother. He's joining us. He's taking Ryan's spot for this evening. So, uh, Brandon, what do you feel about what Eric just said? I mean, uh, the thing is, in a sense, I do agree. Uh, I feel like sometimes what hinders a Kubrick film is uh, the meticulous amount of overanalyzation. I mean, just uh, The Shining is probably the most perfect example where you've got, uh, especially what now that there's an entire documentary about it, absolute, uh, Room 237, I think, that goes into, you've got these people that are probably on the same level, I think playing field is like flat earth or, you know, chemtrails trying to convince people that, you know, he did the film to try to prove that he actually uh, faked the moon landing. So it's like, it's gotten to a point where it's gone beyond the classroom lecture. You know, it's gotten to the point where you just put in Kubrick analysis in Google and you're going to end up with almost a thousand pages. Um, so, but in the in regards of Eyes Wide Shut, um, I didn't want to do that. I just wanted to go in with my own perception of what I think was going on. And I stayed away from online as much as I could because I didn't want to be persuaded otherwise. Yeah, see, no, by, by no means am I um, am a member of the Church of Kubrick. You know, uh, he has a lot of films that he's made that I've never seen. But I always go with the big ones, right? You got uh, Dr. Strangelove, 2001, Clockwork, Full Metal, Shining, and then uh, this one, Eyes Wide Shut. Um, his last I don't one. like his last one. 
I don't like half the films that he's made. You know, it's just, I'm just, I'm not a fan of Barry Lyndon. I'm not a fan of Dr. Strangelove and I'm not a fan of 2001, but I really enjoy clockwork, really enjoy full metal. And I'm going to say, I really enjoyed this one. And this is kicking off our brand new series, starting out with directors who have died and their last films. Now, you guys, I don't know how deep you guys went into this, but I delved deep into the research after I saw this a few days ago. This is a movie that he's been making since the 60s. He actually bought the rights to the book in the early 60s that was written in the 1920s, and he's been trying to make this for years. So I'm going to give you guys some ideas about what, what this was going to be. In the 70s, before he was going to make Clockwork Orange, he was going to make this movie starring, any guess from you guys? Mm, in the, in the, the 70s? Role? Yeah, in the Tom Cruise role, who was going to play the Tom Cruise? You guys have any idea? Uh, Burt Reynolds. That's uh, a great guess. I don't know. Michael Landon. Lando. Woody Allen. <laughs> wow, Woody okay. Allen was supposed to be in this movie. <laughs> So this movie, all the way until they made it, was supposed to be a dark, erotic comedy. A comedy? I don't know where the comedy would even fit in a movie like this, but I mean, it's maybe I'm saying that because I've already seen this movie. Well, I, I, I can't see a comedy either, but that's what it was intended. So before Clockwork, he was going to make this. It didn't happen, so he made Clockwork. After Clockwork, he was going to make it again. But Clockwork was not a great success for him, so he needed something to do something that was kind of commercial. Stephen King was popular, so Shining. After Shining, you know, Full Metal Jacket. Brandon got a guess in the early '90s. Wise White Show. Uh, oh, um, early '90s, early '90s. Harrison Ford actually signed on to play the Tom Cruise role. Uh, well, man, he was like the hot because he was. Um... Uh, the like the who was it? Jack Ryan? Is that who who he, who he was doing all that stuff? Clear and present danger. Oh yeah yeah yeah. You're right. Um, yeah, he signed on. He did another one after uh, after the last Crusaders when he signed on. Okay. So after this, then I'm assuming he turned this role down because the script uh, Six Days Seven Nights came into his lap, and he was like, you know what? This seems like the better path. No, actually, Harrison Ford made a paycheck from this movie because he signed a contract to do the movie. Oh. So, but after thinking about it, Kubrick said no. He waited, he waited, and waited. And then he loved something in the tabloids. Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise, they were everywhere in the tabloids. And he thought no better than to put a real married couple into a movie and destroy it. And that's what he did, because they got divorced after this one. <laughs> well, they clearly had marital problems off-screen, and uh, having them on-screen I don't think was going to be fixing anything anytime soon. That's, I don't know, that's not healthy at all. Jeez. And it just... It, it, it uh, especially so with probably like one of the most... Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, that's it. It's like they just seem so strange sometimes in these scenes, you know? Like, it just seems stiff yeah and it's like it, it probably doesn't help either that it's you know they were if their relationship is already strained uh you know pre-production by time production actually started you're working with one of the most anal retentive directors known to man at this time 
so that probably didn't help matters either. No, it didn't. And this is my little bit of last of history before we get into the film, like we always do. But uh, Senator Kubrick had a fear of travel. So this whole film was filmed in the back lot of Pinewood Studios, which to me looks great. I mean, there are definitely scenes when he's walking towards the end, you know, when he's being followed. That definitely looked like, felt like a soundstage. But that was kind of neat. And what he did was he separated Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise deliberately. And they were not allowed to be around each other. Uh, the scenes when Tom Cruise is thinking about what her uh, romance was with the uh, with the Navy guy, uh, they filmed that in four days, that scene. And he was never allowed to see it or know what happened. She was She actually signed a contract and she was not allowed to legally tell him what happened in the scene. Just to add that sense of, you know, what the fuck is my wife doing kind of thing. Well, Interesting. Yeah, th- listen, a lot of things about this movie were, were questionable, and I wouldn't think that the behind-the-scenes matters of it would be any different. No, it's not. But I, okay, so, it's stuff, okay, so let's just fuck around with the behind-the-scenes stuff. Fuck that. I thoroughly enjoyed this movie. A lot. I didn't think I would. I haven't seen this in probably 15 years. 15 years ago, I was like, ooh, orgy and boobs. Now I'm just like, wow, this is literally what marriage is like. This boredom. I mean, she's bored. And she has nothing else to do. I think this movie would be actually better if we found her getting railed in the orgy. Like, wouldn't that be interesting? (laughs) It, It brings to light a lot of things. Right, I mean, cause especially because how they react with with each other and uh, what they're what they're doing, uh, she seems to be kind of accepting in this this role of her Stepford wife, I guess. But she seems kind of like longing for her sexual past or freedom. Um, but she's also kind of grooming her daughter to to grow up the same way as well too. So it's it's right. there's a lot more going on. And I think people wanted to focus more on the erotic part of this movie, on the sex part of this movie, on the orgy part, and this weird elite mask club part of it shit, because they disliked, they, I don't know why they liked that, but I, I think we're getting like a lot you know, more Kubrick with this, where everything's just really packaged, and it's in layers, and you know, it's the same damn thing, like a David Lynch type of thing where it's just you have to watch it over and over and you have to make sure that you connect all the dots. And it, it's just, it's a lot, man. It's it's a project to watch these movies. Well, see, now, you make uh, a, see, uh, that, you yeah, make a go, good go ahead, point Brandon. there. You make a good point, uh, Eric. In turn, I was just actually, I was going to at one point in time bring up David Lynch um, only because, you know, when you, when you speak in, in Lynchian terms to, a, you know, a film person, uh, at some point, they always talk about his dreamlike quality. You know, like they, you look at movies like Blue Velvet or Mulholland Drive, you feel like by 30 minutes in, you feel like you're weightless, that you're just drifting. And I like those movies a lot. I appreciate those. But there are just, there are moments where I have to start questioning sometimes, is this necessary in terms of the story? And I, there, after the orgy scene, I feel like Eyes Wide Shut to me is great all the way up to the orgy scene and then after 
I found myself having to try to pay a little bit more closer attention because I feel it patters and, and teeters a little bit too much on the runtime after that moment. Wow, I can't, I, I can't agree with you at all on that one, but I think that the movie's great leading up to the orgy. I think the movie flounders during the orgy, and then I think the movie goes even bigger after the orgy because it's all a mystery now. He's trying to go back and unfold this, this, this spider web of lies and trying to figure out exactly what happened. You know, like, was this Domino? Was this, was this the street hooker that was, that was telling me to get out? Was this the girl that I saved in the beginning in the bathtub, bathroom to try to help me out? Like, what's going on? Who do I trust? And my wife said last night that this movie reminded her the part after the orgy. It reminded her of the game with Michael Douglas, just what's real, what's not. And I think the, the after the orgy is the most entertaining, to be quite honest. Really? Okay, I, I can see where because you have like this, this kind of psycho thriller that has now kind of taken over as well, too. But I, again, I think it's all it's counteracted with a, with subtext. Like it really is because you have these scenes that sometimes end up being so 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 dry, you know. Like uh, uh with the uh, the the one prostitute he was with, where it um and he was just kind of awkward and he ended up just paying her and leaving. Cause yeah, felt Domino. Bad. Yeah, exactly. Like like that scene is a great example of where it's just uh, like I don't know if why Kubrick wanted hit it that way maybe he just wanted it to be awkward maybe he that was a, a part of it right or there's like this unfamiliarity between each other but they're both there for because of something else two strangers in the room uh being being functioned or being operated on by a, a cause that i don't even know it just just drives them it just it just seems so fucking it gives you a lot of time to think about it Especially well, how about these, this? these scenes just uh, ex- exactly extend a lot of these 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 moments that don't need to be extended. So it gives you time to think about what's going on. Well, okay, let's go with the domino scene for an example. One thing that I really noticed that I found very interesting throughout the whole movie is that Tom Cruise, no pun intended and lack of a better word, he's just a pussy. I mean, he doesn't act on anything. Any time that he was going to either say yes or no to something, he gets interrupted. Let's let's go back. In the beginning of the movie, when they go to, to the Christmas party, he has those two girls with him, those two models. Yeah. And they want to take him to the end of the rainbow. And he was walking with them, smiling, kind of awkward a little bit. And then right when he had to make a decision, somebody came in and said, hey, uh, the guy upstairs needs you. Right? Same thing with Domino. She said, come upstairs, let's hang out. You know, he goes upstairs, there's awkward. He kisses her a little bit. And right when he says, are we going to talk about money? His phone rings. So there was his out. He never makes an actual decision in this movie. He always has somebody else to do it for him, which I found interesting about his character. But like, that's, that's a testament to his character because maybe he's not, he's not after the sexual gratification. I think he's out for revenge. Brandon, do you think he's out for revenge after his wife tells him this dream that she had? And he's just maybe not out for a revenge fuck, maybe, but maybe he's out to say, well, I'm going to show her I'm going to have a better time. Maybe. What do you think why he's going out? 
Um, I actually looked at it as uh, a means to try to take back some sort of semblance of power. Um, you know, like his manhood. Well, I mean, he's clearly not a poor man, but he he's a rich man trying to live in a richer man's world, if that makes sense. And that's it all comes to, you know, he always has to try to announce his title. That's something I noticed. And um, this often happens to politicians. A politician will always announce that they're a politician because then that told that tells the room their title and then that gives them control and command of the room. So there's always moments where he's has to make sure that he's telling everybody that he's a doctor. I'm a doctor. I'm you know, this is my title. And I all it starts presenting itself more, I think, when Nicole Kidman reveals to him that uh, she has this sexual fantasy of another man, especially coming right off of the heels of Tom Cruise saying women don't think like that. Trust me, I'm a man. We men think like that. Women don't. But then she drops the bombshell on him and, and basically tells him that their entire planning, their life plan together, she had the image of the naval, uh, the naval sailor in her mind. So that took the power away from him. And I, his whole sort of trek out into the night is a very dreamlike sort of haze, you know, just bouncing from one location to another. And he's, he's a lost, broken man at that point, trying to regain back control, which he never really does. That's a very interesting point that you say that he's trying to reclaim that. I never took it that way. See, I always took it as he's hurt, he's angry. So I thought he was initially. I thought he oh, was yeah, going like, out to find a revenge fuck. Like I'm going to find someone else and have sex with her. Well, I mean, fuck you, you know. Can't it, that? Yeah, yeah, to Brandon's point, he's he's not, is not so much to to be so so vulgar as to go out and actually do the act, but to get to that level of maybe of consent or that position of power where he was able to do it is an accomplishment enough for him. So that's, that's good that's, for his ego. That's kind of what, I, what I'm thinking. and Or maybe he's just like, you know, uh, uh, maybe it is just one of those where he, he is shy and, and the opportunity never actually gets to that point. So maybe this is just, just him kind of playing in his head because he doesn't actually have the actual morality to, to go through with it, you know, as, as an actual husband and, and father. But the right. other part of it, I, from what I was interpreting, is that that's that's where he got his win from, was to get that far. And when once he got that far, he was uncomfortable with, okay, well that's all I needed, and he didn't he didn't really know how to close after that. So that's where we get those situations where he finds the out and he takes it because he's he got what he wanted. Exactly, mm, and it's like uh, there's there's two good moments to to enhance that even further that I that I picked up on. If you notice, to go back onto that, uh, like between what Eric and I are saying and the semblance of power, the two moments that he dominates or shows sort of that power uh, uh, dominance over another is two people who are lesser than him, and he knows it. He knows in this instance he has that control over him, and that is Domino essentially when they go to her apartment. You, he sort of, in a very condescending way, as nice as he can, he kind of talks down about her apartment, you know, saying that, oh, this is a lovely, cozy little place. But then the most visual cue of that is comes at the cabbie, right? When he takes the $100 bill and tears it in half. Like, that's mm -hmm. a form of power. 
but then you realize uh, that power immediately gets taken away when he's at the orgy because now he is confronted with something that is at a higher status than him, and he doesn't understand. Brandon, I'm 100% agree with in that point because I will say that he's trying to be a one percenter, but he's actually like, you know, like a five percenter or like a ten percenter. You know what I mean? Like, you know, he wants to be a part of that big boys club, but he's not quite there. You know, he's he's still playing JV. That's a, that's yeah. a very interesting point. It's very very interesting point. So, uh, you know, I, I just want to say this right off the bat: the first glimpse the first scene the first shot that we get is 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 nicole kidman's uh, naked body um what a beautiful i never knew she was that fucking beautiful nicole kidman is gorgeous in this film i mean to me she i think she's always looks good she was i remember when i was first introduced to her i think i was a kid and i saw uh batman and robin maybe or batman Batman forever Forever. Forever. Yeah, yeah i'm sorry uh, that one, and I was like, "Oh, I'll look at that one. I like it." I said, "I said I mean, that, I said that as a kid. Fun. I guess that's how I talked." But uh, yeah, see, for me, it was uh, mine was even further back when I because uh, I had a cousin who had weird VHSs, and that's sort of how I got into the VHS craze. Uh, he had BMX Bandits. Uh, <laughs> that was one of my first uh, sort of introductions with Nicole Kim. I mean, didn't know who it was at the time, of course, but man, uh, Judy is her character's name, man. Ooh, Boy, yeah, that was one of my, yeah, that was a that was a first crush right there. But she even and looked she... good in um, oh the what's the HBO uh the liars thing, ah damn it, something on the the thing that on HBO with her and Laura Dern and and such. I don't know, Pretty Little Liars or something. Big Little Lies. There, I got it. <laughs> there we go. I mean, she's just beautiful. She's great. I mean, she's she's gorgeous. I just wow. I mean, like uh, I uh, think this. I I think the shot that made me go, "Oh, she's really pretty." Is uh, now hear me out. It's right after her naked shot, and she and she sits on the toilet while he's getting uh, changed or whatever, and he kind of like doesn't see her, you know. And like, and she and she has that leg up with that. Uh, oh, what do they call that thing that ladies wear in weddings? Uh, oh shit, garter put on the leg. Thank you. She has like this garter belt thing. She's showing a lot of leg. She shows a lot of back. Her hair, I like that blonde kind of hair. I, I don't know how you want to call it. Like curls, I guess. It's just, wow. Just a beautiful woman. I was like, Jesus Christ. Right, slow down there, Jordan. Oh, I'm no, sorry. She's a beautiful woman, man. I, I didn't know. I did not realize that. But they go to the party, and then we meet into his friend who was actually a client of his, Tom Cruise's friend, a character for his friend for him and uh he has a hooker upstairs that is ODing on speedballs what the fuck's a speedball is it heroin and cocaine mix uh yeah it's a yeah. it's a mix that sounds absolutely horrible why would you ever do that well i mean ask that i guess yeah and that's uh his friend that's uh sydney pollock who uh more more notoriously known as a director than an actor well, I can tell because he was not very good in this movie. I thought it was fine. It's fine too. <laughs> you, well, it's, it's, well, here's the thing. Would you guys rather want him, or do you want the original actor that was on set for two months, decided that he couldn't handle Stanley Kubrick anymore and quit, and they and they and they hired Cindy? Would he be better, or would Harvey Keitel be better in this part? 
I don't know if I could stand Harvey Keitel in this. Like it, it again. I the, there's a certain tone that as an actor you would want for your character, and I think Kubrick intentionally fucks with his actors uh, to make them perform a, a different way than they would maybe had originally intended for that character. So I, I feel like if you had Harvey Tal- Keitel coming in here, he might be a little bit more, uh, um, you know, uh, panicked by everything like that. But uh, maybe it just seems like this no. character. No. If, what, you don't. You don't agree? No, I don't. If if a Harvey Keitel came in here playing the wolf like he did in Pulp Fiction, this would be great. Because at the end of the movie, when when uh, when his friend is telling him everything that's going on, the truth, which we'll get into later in the show, uh, in the library pool room, he was very flat. He was very dry. And I think somebody as cool and calm and collected as the wolf character that Harvey Keitel played, I think would have made that even more cold and sinister than what is actually portrayed. I didn't feel the guy was telling the truth then I felt like he was telling the truth. You know, it was weird. With with uh, with Harvey Keitel, it's like, oh, I don't trust this guy at all. It would just have a different feel to the movie. Sure. Well, we're glad we got what we got, to be honest with you, but I don't think it all made right. this movie any better. <laughs> I don't think it made any worse. This movie's not bad. It, we it, have... It's not great either. I don't know, man. We have reviewed Extraction. We've reviewed some shit. Last American Virgin last week. I mean, this movie's not bad at all. Uh, so before we get into the orgy scene, which I have a lot of questions about, um, we got uh, the rainbow, uh, what, like a, like a costume place, and he buys his way to get a costume, uh, Russian guy there. So that girl looks like Helen Hunt, the teenage jar. Does, does she not? No. Oh, well, yeah, of course she's. That's been compared before. That's. Um... Oh, that is. That's just not. Oh, really? That's the thing. That, that's Lele really? Lele Sabetsky. Yeah. That's the thing. I didn't know that was the thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, of okay. course it is. Okay, and then we get these two Asian transvestite guys having sex with. It's weird. That whole scene is weird, but I had a grin on my face, and I don't know why. I guess I like the sleaze of it. Of that whole of that whole setup, I thought it was very entertaining. It was just it was very entertaining for me. You guys do not share this opinion, I'm assuming. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, uh, I don't know. To me, it, it's just to see. To me, it is an inclusion of what I love so much about uh, everything pre orgy and everything during the orgy, comparative to everything post orgy. Uh, the reason why is because I, so I'm going to get right to it. Uh, I really, really enjoy the ambiguous dreamlike sort of, uh, meandering this little, you know, following Tom Cruise around as he goes from one mysterious place to the next. I, I love that it's not explained. Uh, and, but when it gets to, uh, post orgy that's when everything starts i feel starts telling me more than showing and it feels like it felt like kubrick needed to he was worried that maybe it, the movie would have come off too symbolic or too ambiguous so he had to like scale it down and try to explain a few things that's why i kind of 
fell my way out of it. But um, I don't know the rainbow, the rainbow costume shop to me is just uh, it's 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 a conclusion to a symbolic sort of foundation that he set at the Christmas scene because those two twins told him, "Do you want to come to the end of the rainbow?" And that's just to me parts. Uh, it's just a layer to the puzzle that Kubrick was building. And naturally, the end of the rainbow is he's getting a costume to now enter this sort of, you know, secretive high society orgy that's well above his means and standards. And I don't know, that's, I, I, that's why I love all of those segments. I, I love the, the Kubrick is best when he lays out the puzzle pieces and forces you to put it together. Okay, well then question for both of you then. Is this a high society orgy or is this that's just something that we believe? I mean, like, for some reason in my head when I'm watching this movie and it comes to the orgy scene, now remember, I haven't seen this for 15 years. I thought, I guess this made up in my mind that they said that ex-presidents are a part of this and CEOs and no, they don't say any of that shit at all. This is something to put in my head. So is it because of the mansion? The reason why that we believe this is high society? Because, uh, oh, because I mean, I mean who, who, who else? Yeah. Who else would it be? I mean, you're. I mean, this isn't. This isn't a party set up by managers owning, you know, Burger Kings. No, you know, I'm not saying even... those kind of guys. But why can these guys all be Tom Cruise guys? You know, why can well, they all be the doctors? They kind of are. They kind of are. Well, that do we know that though? Well. A little bit, because again, this is you know whole Tom Cruise is like the whole he's feeling you know he's he's discovering that there is something again back to that power mentality that he's discovering that there's something that exists beyond his means. I mean that's the whole reason why he pressures Nick Nightingale, his friend, to begin with, right? He finds out that there's something that uh, he is not a part of. There's something that he can't control. So that's why he pressures Nick into getting the password and to telling him where the address is. But then what gives him away is when, you know, Vic, who's played by Sidney Pollack at the end, tells him, you know, one of the biggest mistakes you made was you pulled up in a taxi, not a limousine like everybody else does. So, I mean, I, there's, I don't know. To me, it's definitely, I don't know. To, it, it goes without saying that it, something like this it's probably definitely controlled by means of people with, <laughs> with higher standards. No, I mean, I'm not disagreeing with you on it. I just thought it'd be an interesting kind of conversation to be, you know, are these ex-presidents and CEOs of Microsoft or all these all just guys like Tom Cruise, you know? And, like, I guess I want to know more about this cult, and that's why is Vic telling the truth at the end or not? And that, to me, is the biggest mystery. Is, well, is he telling the it. truth? It, it, why should it matter who's who's in it? It's a club that he's not a part of. Right. Well, it, well, it matters to me who's in it because I want to know more about the club. You know, well, these too bad, of, buddy. These... You're not in the club. Well, <laughs> and the I movie's guess. not about. Remember, the movie's not about the club either. It's not about the orgy. I mean, this movie, it it makes very clear that we are following. Tom Cruise. We are following Bill. We are following this man who gets his entire world shattered, at least in his perspective. Um, and then now we're following him through this sort of dreamlike haze of trying to not only reconstruct the power that he lost, but coming to terms with realizing that uh, their marriage isn't as good as what he thought it was in the beginning. 
That's a valid point. Okay. So I went back on YouTube and I watched some of the trailers from my memory back when this came out in 99. And they were heavily marketing. This was an erotic thriller. And, you know, there's a scene that's too hot in theaters. And got a question. What version did you guys see? Did you guys see the rated R version or the NC-17? Do you know the difference? I don't. Well, there's some people having sex on a table in the one that I watch. Okay, so how you tell the difference between the version that was released in theaters, which is your R-rated, and then the unrated cut when it was released on video, is if your version that you watched was when people were having sex and there was a lot of thrusting in the orgy scenes, there were men in cloaks in front of them, so you really couldn't see the action. Or the unrated cut is there is no people in front of them because they digitally put those people in. So which one did you guys see? Oh, I saw the probably the R-rated then because I, I rented this off of Voodoo. Uh, I, I guess I saw that one uh, to them, but I, I mean, I don't know. I clearly saw people having sex. I think I know which thing you're talking about. Yeah, there's a, there's, 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 a, there's a few scenes when he walks into a room and there is a guy uh, plowing a well, girl on well, top which of the kitchen did you, table. Yeah, yeah, then I saw the uncensored. Which one did you see, Jordan? I saw the I saw the censored version because it got off of Showtime. And I just found it interesting because Stanley Kubrick digitized. He actually gave approval uh, to actually digitally put these, uh, these, these cloak guys in the foreground so they can release this in theaters. I thought that was interesting. Um, so they marketed this as this hardcore erotic cinema experience. Was this orgy hardcore? Or has modern day just kind of desensitized us? Brandon, what do you think first? Was this as erotic as the marketing said in 99? Um, well, I was only nine years old at the time, so my, my level of judgment in terms of eroticism wasn't quite of course, uh, established yet, but... Uh, I don't know. With the lens that I have today, no. Um, I found it to be a more... I'm a huge proponent of color in movies. I love when movies use color as a, a verbal language. Uh, so the whole time the orgy scene was going on, I was fixated on those heavy, heavy reds and you know, uh, light golds. I was focused more on that than the actual sex, actually. Eric, how about you? Was this very erotic or was this... Eh? I've seen better. I, I have seen better. The movie is called Perfume. If you want an orgy scene, then I suggest you go ahead and watch that movie. It's dope. And then it ends in a giant orgy. Don't mean to spoil that one for you. But um, just FYI, because it really threw me off when I watched that movie with my mom. So you want that warning to avoid that awkwardness. Because yeah. it, uh, it is a lot. It's a, it's a whole village. Okay. Well, or like if... Or like if you go down any, like I can name off several exploitation films, you know, like Thriller or Cool Picture or 99 Women. Like if you go down the exploitative road, you're going to find things way more hardcore. Yeah, but it's, right. I, I understand right. that this might be edgy and that might have been used to get some, some headlines or maybe some attention or some bad press because bad press usually gets more people into the seats. Um just out of curiosity to see how bad something is. So, I, I mean, it, whether it's that or not, I don't think it, it really 
is is completely a, a, I mean like a hardcore. There is erotic features to it, but it's like a lot more voyeuristic than than anything like uh, I don't know like a lustful, romantic, or or kind of raunchy. It's just more you know just watch almost like a, like from a director's point of view. Right. Because 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 uh, because I got it from it that it was a monogamous orgy in a way because after the women did their rituals they went out picked a guy and then those were the guys they were with everybody else was just watching so then okay so I have two more questions before we give our popcorn ratings so uh, my second to last question for you guys is this one is what do you think is really going on now I know you do said that it doesn't matter and I get that I get that it doesn't matter but it's always fun to kind of tear this apart do you think that this was an evil i'm going to just say for lack of a better word satanic cult were they were they having sex not for pleasure but having sex to procreate to do something and also with that did they actually kill the girl that saved tom cruise or was this all a ruse like Vic said eric what do you think I, I think this is just uh, the one percenters just trying to do their some sort of elite thing and that I don't know if this is supposed to be like a power grab or if like um, maybe the people that are, are having sex and them just kind of watching are doing it on their command or or what's going on. Or maybe they just like maybe they're just bored on, uh, on a, the first Saturday of every month, you know, <laughs> and that's it. They just got to meet and, and do something. But either way, I think it's I I think that the whole point of it is is that there is this top there's this unobtainium that is being sought after by people underneath it and it seems like no matter how hard they try they're just not going to be able to to get it and whether it be the sexual thing which maybe was envisioned by uh bill the entire time um or something else you know that's that's just kind of what the theme of the of the movie is that it's not it's not an orgy it's not you know it, it's something else that he's that he's reaching for i'm kind of a firm believer into that brandon what do you say on that i mean i'm with eric on that and i not to sound but it not to sound like so one-sided against you buddy but i i feel like eric i feel like eric probably watched this movie uh sort of with the same viewpoint that i had and that uh, to me, it, literally, like the entire time, man, and I'm just—I'm probably sound like a broken record, but to me, the theme of loss of power—it's—it's it's painted all over this movie, and again, like this can be mirrored again at the end with Vic and the and the pool table. If you notice, or if you did notice, Vic rarely left that pool table, and there's a reason. Whether he had the whiskey or bourbon glass in his hand or a pool ball or a pool stick, he uh, kind of did like a knock knock. Like he kind of did like a sort of an audible signal, uh, no different than how the, the, I guess, like, I guess you want to call him cult leader who's all cloaked in red, how he used his staff and also did like the audible click click to have the girls be subservient to that audible noise. Mm -hmm. Every time Vic did it, uh, Tom Cruise sort of broke down and listened and understood in that moment that he needed to walk away. So again, to me, everything leads back to just 
power. And that was Vic, where you said earlier, Vic wasn't, uh, like uh, Sidney Pollack as an actor wasn't doing well. I think he was, it was his body language is what you needed to focus on more than his actual verbal acting. Because he was just, he was mimicking the orgy scene almost to a T in terms of audible signals. Uh, and it was just taking back control of the matter because he actually does care about Bill. He cares about his friend and he's telling him, look, if you don't stop with your inquiries, something might actually happen. Whether it will or not, that's left up to us to determine. But I love the fact that Vic took control of that situation by reminding Tom, Tom Cruise's character, that uh, you do not have power here. No, it doesn't matter how hard you try, you know, doesn't matter how much money you try to throw at this or what you try to do, you're not invited. Walk away from this. All right, so then with that then, that's an interesting point. I'm going to go with my last question then for you guys before we get into our popcorn rating. We find out that Domino, he goes to her back to her, uh, her apartment, and her uh, roommate Sally's there, and Sally tells him that, she te- that Domino tested for HIV, and she's, boom, out of the picture. And then we find out that the girl that he saved in the beginning of the movie in the bathroom died of a drug overdose. And Vic's telling him that there was no ritual, that she did not sacrifice herself to death for him, that we was just a ruse to scare him to stop what's going on. Because there's a lot of powerful people involved in this, and we don't want it to be embarrassed or revealed. So I know everything about power and control, but do you guys believe what Vic is telling Tom Cruise? So, Brain, we'll go with you first. Do you believe Vic is all this in his head, so to speak? Um, did, they not, did, they, did they not kill Nick? Is Nick on a plane back to Seattle? You know what I mean? Like, is this happening? Yeah. Uh, again, uh, it's you, you could choose either side of that coin and come out of this conversation correct, honestly. Um, but I guess uh, to, to answer your question in a hypothetical sense, um, I don't know. I, I feel like, no, I feel like Nick is fine. I feel like, uh, Mandy, I believe was her name, uh, actually overdosed, uh, because that's just my own cynicism to all the one percenters out there who might be listening to this. (laughs) Uh, they're actually, they're, they're just cowards. They're people with, with big pockets that try to seem big and powerful on the surface, but when presented with any real situation, they, you know, they they have the spine of a gummy worm. So no, I think they're fine. I think Nick's fine, and I think she actually died of an overdose. What about you, Eric? Do you think Vic's telling the truth? I, again, I, I feel like it's a part of the movie to show you that it it really doesn't matter because if he accepts it if bill accepts it and says okay uh, this is what it is I'll, I'll back off then he's not gonna get that thing he he wants so much which is the exclusivity of being in that club and if he pursues it then he probably will still not obtain it as well too he might get an answer but it's going to go down a very bad and dangerous road for him because he's been warned for it so what's the point of that um it, it started to play like again some sort of I don't know, it just it, it layered in, in mental kind of uh, uh, trip that this guy's been going on. And Jordan, if you tell me that this entire damn movie is in uh, Dr. Hartford's head and we've just been watching <laughs> some sort of like this, some fucking 
Ferris Bueller Cameron theory, you know, where he's been daydreaming Cameron was is just made up Ferris Bueller the entire fucking time to deal with his own depression after being destroyed by his father or some shit like that, and that's what happened here. Got destroyed by his wife, Alice, and he just went down this, this trip of all, of an adventure about something don't tell me that, but that's what I think. Well, no, to go no, off what, to go off what you uh, said there, Eric, uh, and when you said you know to feed off Eric a little bit, where he said like it really doesn't matter. Uh, I mean, he's absolutely right because if you think about it in that sense, it has led to a gridlock, right, a, a stalemate in whatever sort of weird chess game that's been going on. Uh, it's a, the conversation, it, the the semblance of power has come to a stalemate. And it's no different than the marriage. Like now, when you get to that final scene between uh, Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman, they, on the surface, it seems like they've come to the conclusion. Like their eyes are now open, I guess you could say, and, you know, resemblance to the title. Um, but even it has come to a stalemate. Like they, they didn't really resolve anything. No. I'm a, huh. I'm actually going to argue with that, with you on that, but I'll give that to our Paco rating. So we'll get into it first here. Paco rating for me, I think this movie is a large bag. I, I really, really do. I think this movie is great. Uh, I think there's a lot of things you can pick apart. Not Church of Kubrick, like we established early in the show, kind of like obsession, but an obsession where it's like, okay, there's more here than what's going on because I don't believe that Vic is telling the truth at all. Because we get the mask at the end of the uh, movie uh, where it's on the bed. Now, one could lead to interpretation that, that, you know, that Nicole Kidman found it, but she never said she found it or not. So I always think that, huh, that's interesting. They put the mask on the bed as a one more fuck you, stop fucking with us. And I will disagree with you on, on what you just said, Brandon, about how they accomplished nothing. I think they accomplished a lot because Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise never have sex in this movie. They they don't even apply that they have sex in the movie. It was all sexual build-up frustration. So the last line in the movie is, we need to fuck. It's like them realizing, okay, we, we, we don't like being outdoor cats. We want to be indoor cats, and we need to come together as man and wife. Uh, I think the movie has a lot more going for it uh, than what a lot of people say. And I think the movie is actually very interesting – when you tear it down and build it up to where best word I can say, um, tear, tear it down and build up to where I think that this is just as good as shining or a uh, full metal jacket for me. Like, like this is up there for me when it comes to his films, because there's a lot to it. So I think this one's a large bag for sure. Uh, Brandon, how about you? What is your popcorn rating for eyes? Wide shot. Uh, I'd probably give it a medium. Uh, it's not giving it a large to me would insinuate that I would uh, be going back to it numerous times over. Um, I don't see myself doing that with this one. I've seen it. I not like I said. I've seen it once before, late high school, and now seeing it again with a with a, a fresh, I guess, adult eyes, if you want to put it that way. I'm I'm so so with it. It's fine. I didn't hate it. Uh, I didn't fall in love with it. Um, but like I had mentioned before we started the show, uh, the one interesting thing about Kubrick is that I've never actually been dis like mad at one of his movies. I've never like full on hated any of his movies. Uh, but yeah, it's, a, uh, I guess in this sense, uh, it's, it's one and done for me. Like I've seen it. I know it. 
Uh, I was satisfied with what I was given. There are things I had problems with, but um, I mean, especially if you're if you're a film enthusiast or, or a Kubrick completionist and haven't got to this, then yeah, obviously, give it a check. All right, and Eric, what is going to be your popcorn rating for Eyes Wide Shut? This is a medium back for sure. Stanley Kubrick does the uh, does the typical uh, borrow from a book, subpar story plot, and makes it into some sort of a visual interpretation of uh, some sort of society's problem with the world and and people's in there in it. Uh, and it's just kind of a message grabber he likes to do. He likes to take these these easy simple stories and so he can maybe make something more of a of a film with it that tells more than than just that I think. Visually pleasing. This movie is wonderfully detailed. Like uh, just flat out and that's why I enjoy watching it um for that reason. It is typical Kubrick though, so it's long as shit. This is like a 2 hour 40 minute one. And, uh, geez, it just feels that way, too. Watch it in parts just because they're just moving. Like, the the single camera shots, I think, are wonderful. I'm always a fan of them. And the more detail that you can put into a shot, I think, is just wonderful. And there is so much that he puts into these to these shots, whether it just be from fluorescent lights to indoor shots and, and chandelier, how, uh, sh- yeah, chandelier lighting. Um, it just it just works and it transitions well. The camera angles are always there. It it works very seamlessly. I just like the way that he looks through a lens. Again, he's very detailed. There's a lot of subtle imagery. There's a lot of Easter eggs in this one. Pay attention because there's going to be callbacks to this or nods to that. It's it's a lot. And I'm not in for that type of roller coaster ride. I like a good story. It's this is this is uh, Kubrick. It doesn't really deliver so much that he he needs to do something else. But either way, it was a pleasant watch. Medium back. Well, this was one of our longer episodes of Movie Guys podcast. I kind of figured since we're talking about Stanley Kubrick, so I f- hope everybody who has listened to this show definitely enjoyed it. We had a great time talking about this one. Next week, Ryan will be coming back and will be starting a new Netflix movie with Eurovision with Will Ferrell and Rachel McAdams. That's going to be awesome. Brandon, I bet you're happy that you're not going to be involved in that one. <laughs> that one's going to oh, be I'm sure I'd, ha- I'd have, I'm sure I'd end up having more to say about that one. Oh, it's not as bad as you think. <laughs> not as everyone thinks it's going to be bad. So did I. Oh, you're not as bad. You, oh God, you already seen it. Okay. Yeah. I'll, right, I'll watch so. it. I'll watch it again. I, there's the, listen, a lot of these movies, like the Seth Rogen one, I haven't seen that one yet. But there's a lot of these new movies that are coming out. Well, next week we'll be coming back with Eurovision. Thank you, everybody, so much for listening. Uh, Make sure to keep on downloading us at movieguyspodcast.pondbee.com, all the social media. And, Brandon, uh, real quick before we go here, kind of put you on the spot, but you and Ryan have a show on the side as well, a part of Movie Guys uh, Podcast. Do you want to talk about that real quick? Yeah, sure. Uh, real quick, it is uh, titled Late Night Rentals. It is where me and Ryan are essentially diving into all of the trash and sleaze that you would find at your local mom and pop shop during the rental movie days. Um, yeah, it's exploring everything from we're going as far back as silent films all the way up to I think like I think we made it to where we're not going any further than mid 2000s. Something that would have still existed before the fall of video rental. 
but yeah, check us out. It'll be every Saturday morning. Uh, will be a new episode. All right. Well, thank you so much, everybody, for downloading, and we'll be back next week for your vision. Have a good night. <laughs>